Our scripture passage this morning is coming uh, once again from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 47. Luke chapter 22, verse 47. I encourage you to turn to the passage uh, in your Bibles. If you did not bring a Bible, uh, you may use one of the pew Bibles in front of you. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, which is the Black Pew Bible. Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53. I encourage you to strive to give your full attention over to the reading and the preaching of the Word of God today. Luke writes in chapter 22, starting in verse 47, While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness." This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Now we are coming really to the climax of what the last several chapters of Luke's gospel were leading us to, the betrayal, the arrest of Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, several weeks ago I pointed out to you the reality that Jesus, in his earthly ministry, was never out of control of the situation around him. I said... Uh, how that fact would become very important for us to remember in the coming weeks because as we would progress through chapters 22 and 23 of Luke's Gospel, there are going to be many times in which it seems as if Jesus is indeed out of control, not in control of the situation. This is one of those passages. In our text today, we see the betrayer, Judas Iscariot, leading a horde of people into the garden the Garden of Gethsemane, and seemingly overpowering Jesus Christ, arresting him, bringing him under the power of wicked men, and even under the power of Satan himself. But even here, and we might say especially here, we see the absolute sovereign reign and power of Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh at work. There is never a moment, and I think Luke really makes this clear to us in our text today, there is never a moment in these events when Jesus is truly being overpowered. Never a moment when he's out of control. Never a moment when everything and everyone is not working and acting in accordance to his sovereign will. And as we look at this text today, that's really what I want us to see. I want us to see Christ's absolute sovereignty working out uh, in the three sections of our passage this morning. Our passage is indeed divided into three uh, sections. And the first section found verses 47 and 48. This is a section that William Hendrickson entitled this 
He entitled this section, Judas Leads a Crowd. Judas Leads a Crowd, verses 47 and 48. Now, you'll remember from last Sunday, if you were with us, that we saw Jesus, after his agony in the garden, come out to his disciples, who all fell asleep, and Jesus was beginning to sternly, really sternly, rebuke the disciples for sleeping, saying to them that they should have stayed awake so as to pray that they would not fall into temptation. Now Luke notes this morning in verse 47 that as he was still saying these things, so as he was still rebuking his disciples, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. Now the first thing I want to say about this is I think that generally you and I greatly underestimate how big this crowd was. And Luke himself, who gives us the shortest account of Christ's arrest, doesn't really give us the full picture as to the size of the crowd Judas was leading into the garden. But if we would read all four of the gospel accounts of this event, we begin to get a pretty good picture. Matthew, for example, states that this crowd was not just a crowd, but a great crowd. And just like Luke, he tells us they were carrying swords and clubs. And that statement tells us two things. First, it tells us that the temple police were part of this great crowd. Luke himself indicates that later in the text when he says he speaks of the officers of the temple. This would have been the temple security force. These would have been the ones carrying the clubs that Matthew and Luke mentioned. We know that because in those days... Uh, the Jewish security forces were not allowed to carry lethal weapons. So they would have been carrying clubs, similar to what uh, we might see police officers today carrying. Secondly, because swords are mentioned, we know for a fact that there were Roman soldiers present. As I said, Jewish security forces were not authorized to carry lethal weapons like swords. And so... Uh, we know that if people, if there were people there carrying swords, they were likely Roman soldiers. John, in fact, bears testimony to this when he notes that Judas had procured a band of soldiers. Actually, John uses the word cohort, cohort in the Greek. And that word is important because a cohort in the Roman army was one-tenth of a legion. That equates to about 600 soldiers. This tells us this was a huge amount of people marching onto the Garden of Gethsemane. On top of that, on top of the temple police and 600 Roman soldiers, we know that the chief priests, the elders were there. Israel at that time had 70 elders. I don't know if all 70 of them were present, but some of them were. We also know from other gospel accounts that the scribes were there, the Pharisees were there, and some of the servants of the chief priests, as we see in our text this morning. Do you get the point? This was not a mere couple dozen men coming into the garden. This was an army. This was a great crowd. Far more people than you and I are probably used to thinking about when we read of the arrest of Jesus. And the one leading the way the one leading this great crowd, of course, is the man called Judas, one of the twelve. The great betrayer. The one who gave his heart over to greed, 
over to the lust for money, over to power, the one who gave himself over to Satan himself. He is the one who leads this great crowd into the garden to overpower and arrest the Prince of Peace. It is worth noting, I think, just how Judas is described here, beloved. John MacArthur once pointed this out, that the authors of the New Testament, they never really rag on Judas. They show a lot of restraint, in other words, in how they speak about Judas. Now, in the centuries after the writing of the New Testament, a lot of the early church fathers would write some very nasty, and I think rightfully so, write some very nasty things about Judas. But the authors of the New Testament, they themselves simply refer to him as one of the twelve, or Judas Iscariot, who would betray the Lord, things like that. They're very reserved. They never take swipes at, at Judas. And I think they do that, at least in part, to really, truly highlight just how vile this act of betrayal was. They are very keen to remind us that Judas is one of the twelve. We've talked about this before. But it's worth mentioning again, here is Judas leading this army. As Luke says, one of the twelve. And that means he is one who walked with Jesus for three years. He did ministry with Jesus. He shared in deep-seated times of fellowship and communion with Jesus. He was an apostle. He was one of Christ's closest companions on earth. And if you don't think that's true, consider the fact that Judas, as he walked with Christ and the apostles for all this time, Judas what never came under suspect of any of the other disciples that, hey, this guy, he might betray us. They trusted him to the point where they made him treasurer. They trusted him. They had fellowship with him. They knew him. They considered him a brother. And all of that, beloved, makes this act of betrayal truly the greatest act of betrayal ever committed in human history. And as Judas the betrayer leads this great force to capture a man whom he claimed was his Lord, he would betray the very Son of God himself with a kiss. Now a kiss, understand, that was the signal to this great army as to who the man was whom they were to seize. Don't forget it was nighttime. It was dark. They had to make sure they got the right fella. Judas would tell them, this is the man, by kissing him. Now we know that in those days, greeting people with a kiss was common. But beloved, I think we need to understand there are different kinds of kisses for different kinds of greetings. A low servant, for example, would greet his master by kissing his feet. Others might kiss the hem of a garment if this was a rabbi who they were showing deep-seated respect. The kiss that Judas is about to betray Jesus with in the work, oh, I'm sorry, in, uh, the word in the Greek shares the same root word as the word love. The root of the word for kiss in the Greek is the word phylos. You know that word, whether you realize it or not, from Philadelphia. I guess in the Greek it would be pronounced Philadelphia, but if you pronounced 
Philadelphia is Philadelphia and Philadelphia, you probably would not make it out of the city alive. Um, Philadelphia, what does that word mean? The city of brotherly love. The word for kiss that Luke uses here is phalema. It is more than just a customary kiss, you see. It is an action which communicates deep-seated affection among brothers, among peers. Judas did more than just come up to Jesus and peck him on the cheek. He came up to him. He embraced him. And the image we're given through the use of this particular word is that he kissed Jesus multiple times on each cheek. It was more than just your customary greeting. But before Judas executes this sign and actually betrays Jesus Christ, look at what Luke says. Luke says, Judas drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Before Judas actually kisses him, Jesus Christ proclaims that he knows exactly what is in Judas's heart and mind to do. He is fully aware of what is about to go down. Is Jesus out of control in this moment? Is Judas catching him off guard? Is Judas surprising him? Is Judas leaving this army to overpower him? No. Indeed, Jesus is fully aware of all that is happening in that moment and all that will happen. And indeed, he is utterly and sovereignly in control of the entire situation at all times. Beloved, it should not be missed out on us. What these last words, we assume, these are last, uh, Christ's last words to Judas. We should not miss what Jesus is saying to Judas in these last words. Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? I think it is easy in our English Bibles to miss the tone and the heart of what Jesus was saying to Judas. But be sure of this. Jesus was, in these words, reaching out even then to Judas Iscariot. These last words of Jesus, uh, from Jesus to Judas, there is both a great statement of his foreknowledge and his sovereignty, but also there's an appeal for repentance. One pastor says it was a poignant appeal, as if to say, Judas, how could you have chosen such a sign? Could you have not employed another way? Are you so dead so beyond feeling that you could use a kiss. The great preacher Alexander McLaren said, thus to the end, to the end of his life, Christ sought to keep Judas from ruin and with meek patience resented not his indignity, but with majestic calmness he set before the miserable man Judas the hideousness of his act. Jesus was calling Judas to repent even in that moment. Beloved, let me ask you something. In that moment, if Judas would have heard Christ's call to repentance, and he would have fell down on his face and said before Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me. Forgive me. What do you think Jesus Christ would have done? It wouldn't have changed anything. 
The soldiers would have known who Jesus was. He still would have been arrested. He would have still been brought before that mockery of a trial. He still would have went to the cross. But what do you think Jesus would have done if Judas fell down before him in repentance in that moment and responded to the words of Christ with a broken and contrite heart? I can tell you what would have happened. Jesus would have most certainly forgiven the betrayer of all of his sins and he would have given Judas the gift of everlasting life. We are talking about the sovereignty of God, really the sovereignty of the God-man, Jesus Christ, this morning, beloved, but we should not miss the fact that the God-man, Jesus Christ, is always willing and able to forgive all who would repent, no matter what their sin may be. He is willing to forgive all who would repent and give them the gift of everlasting salvation. He would have done it for Judas. He will do it for you if you come before him in humble repentance. And he is able to forgive and give eternal salvation precisely because he is indeed the sovereign God. Well, we come now to the second portion of our text, verses 49 through 51. Judas leads this army, it is an army, into the garden, betrays Jesus. He's about to be arrested. Verses 49 through 51, Luke tells us the disciples, I think, finally realize what is about to happen. Finally, the gravity of the moment smacks the disciples in the face. And one of them asks a Rhetorical question, it is a rhetorical question. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? The reason I say it's a rhetorical question is because it is clear that the disciples did not wait for Jesus to answer the question. Luke says one of them, John tells us it was Peter, of course, who else? Peter struck the servant of the high priest who, again, John tells us his name too, his name was Malchus, and he cuts off his right ear. So I want you to think about this for a moment. Here are the 11 apostles. We know they have two swords because at the Last Supper, one of the disciples said, look, Lord, we have two swords. They have two swords. There's 11 men, and they seem ready to get into a brawl with over 600 armed men, probably close to 1,000 armed men, according to some commentators. Those are not good odds. And remember... Peter and the other disciples, none of them were trained soldiers. In fact, commentators will be quick to note that when Peter cuts off the right ear of Malchus, it proved that he was not very handy with a sword. Because the odds are Peter was going for his throat. And so you think, well, this is a ridiculous response. Why would Peter and the others think that they could fight their way out of this situation? Beloved, it's really not as ridiculous as you and I might perceive it to be. And here's why I say that. When you read John's gospel of this account, the crowd approaches. Jesus asks them, who do you seek? Whom do you seek? And they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And in response, Jesus declares, I am he. And as soon as he said that, listen to what John 
says happened to that great crowd of soldiers and armed men. John says they drew back and fell to the ground. Now what is happening here? Jesus, of course, was sovereignly taking control of the entire situation and really, truly displaying his kingship over all creation, including this army who came to arrest him. And there was great power and authority in his words, so much power and authority that these soldiers dropped to their knees because all he said was, I am he. John Calvin rightly said, he replies mildly that he is the person whom they seek, and yet, as if they have been struck down by a violent tempest, or rather by a thunderbolt, he lays them prostrate on the ground. There was no lack of power in him, therefore, to restrain their hands if he had thought proper. But he wished to obey his father, by whose decree he knew that he was called to die. You see what Calvin is saying there? And you understand why the disciples might be ready to take up the sword. They just witnessed Jesus drop the entire army with three words. It's not so preposterous of them to think, maybe we can fight our way out. There is sovereign power in the words of Jesus Christ. Now, Calvin does go on then to make a point of application, which I think is worth us considering this morning about this. He says, we may infer from this how dreadful and alarming to the wicked the voice of Jesus Christ will be when he ascends his throne to judge the world. At that time in the garden he stood as a lamb ready to be sacrificed. His majesty so far out uh, so far as outward appearance was concerned what uh, was utterly gone. And yet when he utters three words, I am he, his armed and courageous enemies fall down. What was the word? He thunders no fearful excommunication against them, but only replies I am he. What then will be the result when he shall come at the end of the age? Not to be judged by man as he was in the garden, but to be the judge of the living and the dead. Not in that mean and despicable appearance as he was in the garden, but instead shining in his full heavenly glory. Who will be able to stand, brothers and sisters and friends, on that great and terrible final day when the Lamb of God appears in the splendor of his holiness? I am He, knocked an entire army to the ground. When He returns in final judgment, His Word will bring all of creation to its knees. And I hope and pray that you're ready for that day, beloved. But getting back to the text, I think, uh, as I said, if you think about this, if you were Peter and the disciples and you just witnessed Jesus speaking and everyone collapsing around him, it's no wonder they were ready to pick up the sword and fight because they understood, at least on some level, beloved, that their ally was Jesus Christ. And they knew their ally could have wiped out that entire crowd of people simply by speaking. But here's what the disciples did not understand. They did not understand on that night, as Jesus would later declare to Pilate, that his kingdom is not of this world. Jesus would say to Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants 
would have been fighting. In other words, he would have let the disciples fight their way out of it, and they wouldn't have been able to stop those 11 men because Jesus Christ sovereignly would have made sure that they conquered that invading army. My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of the world. And do you see how Peter's actions here could and would undermine these statements that Jesus would go on to make to Pontius Pilate? It's a hard case to make to say my actions are, or my kingdom is not of this world when one of your disciples takes a sword and cuts the ear of the servant of the high priest off. Jesus would not let Peter nor anyone else undermine the truth of his own words or undermine the reality of his kingdom. And so what does Jesus do in this moment in the garden? He once again, in the great display of his power and authority as the Son of God, performs a healing miracle. He touches the ear of his enemy, even as his enemy was in the process of seizing him. He touches his ear and he heals him. Beloved, that is a great display of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. We talked about that way back in our study in the Gospel of Luke, how in these healing miracles, Jesus was showing his sovereignty, his power, his authority over the physical realm. When he heals physical ailments, he is showing his authority and sovereignty over the physical creation. It is a wonderful reminder that Jesus in this moment is indeed sovereign, but it's also a reminder of the fact that Jesus is also displaying his love and compassion. He's showing a profound love for his neighbor in this moment. But it's more than just love for his neighbor in this moment. He was displaying his love for his enemy by healing one who came to help lead him to the cross. The sovereign God at work in the garden, even as he is being arrested, and in his sovereignty he is keeping his own commandment to love your neighbor, love your enemy as yourself. And this does bring us to the third and final portion of our text this morning, verses 52 and 53. And in this section, I really, I do want you to notice something. You may have noticed it already throughout this passage, throughout the sermon. But notice, I want you to notice how bold, how straightforward, and really how composed Jesus is in this moment. Last week we saw Jesus at one of the lowest points in his earthly ministry, literally brought to his knees in spiritual, mental, emotional anguish, an anguish that manifested itself physically as he began to sweat drops of blood. But now coming out of the garden, we see Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, full of power, full of majesty, full of strength, and even, if we can say it, full of unmatched courage. He does not shrink away from the one who would betray him. He does not shrink away from his captors. And here, just moments away from his arrest, look at what he does. He once again confronts the religious leaders of Israel, even as they are coming to arrest him. Look at what he says in verse 52 to the priests and the elders and the officers of the temple. Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. In other words, he is saying to them, you are weak cowards. 
You could have had me any time you wanted. You could have arrested me at any point over the last five days. I literally walked into your jurisdiction when I entered into the temple. I sat down in your midst. I taught people every single day in a public place. You knew where I was. You were so afraid of the crowds that you had to wait until now and invade my private camp with an entire army. Kent Hughes said there's a beautiful irony here because they could have taken him at any time they wanted if they had not feared the people. Instead, they were the ones who came. Jesus said, have you come as if coming against a robber? He said it was they who came under the cloak of night like armed robbers. Their conduct, he said, was an implicit admission that it was not Jesus who was outside the realm of justice. It was them who were outside the realm of justice. Their fear and their cowardliness is such a contrast to the demeanor that we see from Jesus Christ in this moment. And the question we might ask is, why shouldn't Jesus' demeanor be of strength, power, fearlessness, and courage? Again, he is the sovereign God who was in complete and utter control of the entire situation as it was unfolding. And Jesus openly declares that truth, by the way, in verse 53, when he says, but this is your hour. Understand when he said that, he wasn't talking about a literal one hour in the day, 60 minutes. Instead, he was declaring that these wicked religious leaders, these evil men, they were being given a short and definite period of time where they could carry out the evil desires of their heart. Let me say that again. These evil, wicked religious leaders were being given a definite but short period of time when they could carry out the evil desires of their heart. Given this period of time by whom, beloved? Given this period of time by God himself. And we know that this period of time would end when Jesus Christ would rise again victoriously over the powers of sin and death in the devil. Even in this darkest of hours, even in this most evil of times, the sovereign God was working all things according to his eternal decree. These men were no doubt working according to their wicked, depraved, evil free wills, but they were only doing so according to the definite plan and de de decree of God Almighty. And they would only be given their power and be allowed to work out of the wickedness of their heart for a time that God himself determined. It was Jesus Christ, God Almighty himself in the flesh, who was allowing these wicked men to have their hour, beloved. And more than that, more than that, not only was Jesus allowing these wicked men to have their hour, he was indeed allowing Satan himself to have this hour. He says, this is your hour, meaning the hour of these wicked men. And then he says, and the power of darkness. This is your hour and the hour of the power of darkness. That phrase, the power of darkness, it is language used to describe the rule and the dominion of Satan. In this dark hour, the powers of darkness, the powers of Satan, would be allowed to do what they wanted 
more than anything else, they would be allowed to overpower Jesus Christ. But as they do so, understand, as they do so, they are only acting in fulfillment of God's eternal purpose, His eternal decree and salvation. One writer noted that while this was their hour and the hour of the power of darkness, ultimately, it was heaven's hour. This was predestined to happen. The cross, a great act of evil, was approaching. But in and through that great act of evil, God would be at work in making atonement for the sins of his people. Beloved, Jesus Christ is not out of control here. He is not being overpowered. He's not being taken captive against his own will. He is sovereignly ruling in this moment. He is actively allowing his enemies to overtake him. He is handing himself over, in a very real sense, to the powers of wicked evil men and to the power of darkness. And why is he doing it? So that through his arrest and through being led to the cross and his death and eventually his resurrection, he could indeed make atonement for the sins of his people. Here, the Lamb of God is willingly laying his life down for the sheep. All things were happening according to the sovereign decree and plan of God the Father and according to the sovereign decree and will of Jesus Christ the God-man. Beloved, last Sunday evening uh, in our evening worship service, our sermon was on the decrees of God. What are the decrees of God? The, the decrees means his plan. What are the plans of God? And we, we, we looked at how the decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. And we talked about how that can be a hard pill for you and I to swallow, given that our experiences on earth are so filled with, so much filled with grief and sorrow and pain and tragedy, and we see so much evil in the world around us. But I encouraged you all last Sunday night to take great hope in the truth that even amidst our grief and sorrows, the sovereign God is indeed in complete and utter control of all things. Here in our text this morning, the arrest the betrayal, the arrest of Jesus Christ, I think there is a great reminder of this truth. That the sovereign God is in complete and utter control of all things. And I really do hope and I pray that you, you find great comfort regardless of the situations in your lives from this text today. As you see Jesus Christ never out of control. As you see Jesus Christ sovereignly ruling and directing all things. Even in this great hour of darkness when wicked men and Satan himself were having their way with Jesus. Even here, Jesus was never not in control. God the Father was indeed working all things according to the counsel of his own will, both for his glory and for the good, the salvation of those who love him. It's a great truth. And if that is true in Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53, as Jesus Christ is betrayed and arrested, then we can be certain that it is also true in each and every one of our lives here this morning. Jesus Christ, beloved, is your King. 
He is the sovereign ruler of all creation. He is never, not even for a split second, out of control over wicked men. He is never out of control over the powers of darkness. Never out of control over the circumstances in your life. And beloved, truly, all things are indeed being worked out according to His sovereign will and for His glory. And beloved, for us, all things are working for the good of those who love Him. 